This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, October 30th, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. Various federal lawsuits are asking that the Affordable Care Act be implemented as written rather than as the executive hoped it had been written. Oklahoma Attorney General Scott Pruitt filed one of those lawsuits. We spoke today. Uh, well, we filed our lawsuit uh, after we actually filed it, the initial lawsuit in January of 2011 around the individual mandate, and our case was stayed while the NFIB case uh, went to the Supreme Court. So after the ruling in June uh, of 2012, uh, we started evaluating the implementation of the Affordable Care Act. And as you might imagine, whether it was HHS in some instances, but here the IRS, in tandem with Health and Human Services, uh, ignored the plain, uh, unambiguous provisions of the statute. Uh, the state of Oklahoma, like every state in the country, had a decision to make after the ACA was passed, and that was whether to set up a state health care exchange. And there were consequences uh, to those decisions. Policymakers at the legislative level and the governor made an informed decision not to set up an exchange, as have 35 other states. And when that decision was made, and 36 states total said no to an exchange, the IRS and HHS had a problem uh, because the subsidies that are to flow and to issue under the law are only supposed to go through a state exchange. Uh, And so you're talking about $700 billion of uh, subsidies uh, that under the law cannot be issued. The lawsuit is about making sure uh, that the IRS rule that was passed in May of 12 uh, does not go into effect and uh, that it's arbitrary and capricious and is unlawful and should not be um, it should be stayed not, so to, that, not to mention fines on employers right I, I think people people don't really recognize Caleb it's bigger it's it's an issue fundamentally that if there's no exchange there are no subsidies and if there are no subsidies there are no penalties uh, there's also the uh, application with the individual mandate as you know under uh, the law that if your cost of health care eclipses eight percent of your income you have an exemption from the individual mandate the administration knew that uh, and knew that health care costs would rise dramatically because of the added mandates under the Affordable Care Act and wanted to use the subsidies to make sure the threshold was never eclipsed. And so when the subsidies go away, not only can, does the employer mandate go away, largely the individual mandate is affected substantially in 36 states. So uh, in your case, as with the other cases, um, Chevron deference plays a big role. What is that, and how does it or does it not apply? Well, I, mean, I would say, too, that I don't think it plays as big a role as the, as the Justice Department likes to say that it does, because Chevron deference is, is very persuasive, and the courts uh, follow it uh, very effectively uh, when there is what? Discretion given to an agency. When you have a statute that's unambiguous, that is plain, uh, with respect to the authority given to an agency, Chevron deference never comes into play. And here we have that. Uh, Congress specifically laid out the boundaries. Uh, they created two exchanges, a federal and a state. They did not create a hybrid uh, exchange either. This partnership exchange that we've heard, of, heard a lot about, that authority doesn't exist either under the statute. But they did that for a very clear reason. If you go back to the debate that was occurring at the time, there were many senators. In fact, the Democrat senator from Nebraska uh, was concerned about the single, uh, the, excuse me, the federal exchange being the precursor uh, to a single-payer system. And so there was incentives placed into the law to encourage states to set up state exchanges. That's the subsidies. There were billions of dollars appropriated to set up the exchanges and then hundreds of billions of dollars appropriated uh, for the subsidies themselves, all to incentivize the states to set up the exchange. When 36 states said no, uh, this administration did what it does in other areas. Uh, It simply said, I have a pen and I have a phone. I'm going to let my secretary of HHS and the IRS fix the problem. 
uh, to improve upon the statute. Uh, and that's not how our system works. Uh, the plain language of the statute controls. The judge in Oklahoma, Caleb, uh, I think said it very well. He said many will complain that this is a political decision. It in, fact, it in fact is not. I'm simply giving intent and fulfilling that which Congress wanted to occur. Uh, we're applying the statute according to the statutory language. Uh, and so there's a, there's a simple fix. If the federal government wants subsidies to be issued uh, through federal and state exchanges, amend the statute. It's not an excuse to say that you can't get that done. The key phrase in this law is established by the state. In my home state of Kentucky, uh, Governor Bashir there set up an exchange, which presumably then triggers all of these abilities that the IRS would have in an exchange established by the state. But he did so without any legislative input whatsoever. So when the federal government says established by the state, to me at least, it seems unclear that they've delegated that just to the executive branch of a state. What is your take on that? I mean, that? I, I would agree with your assessment. In fact, it would be very similar to a governor unilaterally expanding Medicaid. Uh, that was also a decision that, uh, that flowed out of the NFIB versus Sebelius case. Initially, that was a mandatory uh, obligation on the states to expand Medicaid. It became uh, discretionary after the uh, uh, case initially because it violated the spending power to mandate that. So governors and legislatures across the country had a decision on Medicaid expansion and the health care exchange. And so I think a governor acting unilaterally uh, is very reminiscent and revealing of what's happening in Washington, D.C. today. Uh, it seems like an overreaching executive branch that's inserting itself in legislative powers. That is clearly something as a state that only the legislature and the, gov and the governor and the executive branch can do together. What is your hope for uh, these lawsuits and what is your expectation? Yeah, victory. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, one thing I would say, uh, or a couple things, the, the lawsuit is not about policy. And it's not about politics. I mean, I think many people uh, look at the results and they say you're about litigation that's going to prevent $700 billion of monies flowing to individuals that need it to offset the rising cost of health care. That's a policy discussion. And it's one that I understand. It's one that I sympathize with. But there's something more transcendent involved here uh, than health care. Uh, it's called rule of law. And, and the statute and the statutory framework that Congress set up was signed by this president, and it is constraining upon the executive branch. And so our litigation, and I think the litigation here in D.C. and the litigation in Richmond, uh, ultimately are about rule of law. And we ought to care about that. And we ought to care about it because uh, we don't want an executive branch that's using the power of regulatory bodies to disregard, to repeal, to amend, to alter uh, statutes as passed by our our uh, legislative branch. Uh, that checks and balances matter. And so I'm hopeful, Caleb, that we see uh, a court, uh, and ultimately the Supreme Court, that will send that message loud and clear. We saw some of that uh, at the end of the last term uh, with the NLRB case and the recess appointment issue. Uh, we saw that with the EPA matter a little bit uh, with respect to the tailoring rule uh, when the EPA tried to extend their authority uh, that they have to regulate power plants of over 250 megawatts down to churches and businesses and schools. Uh, the Supreme Court said that the language of the statute didn't permit them to do that. Uh, and so we see the court hopefully sending a message that this balance, this very important balance between the executive and legislative branch is maintained. And we can't allow the executive branch to impose itself uh, despite the dysfunction on the legislative side. Opponents of these suits, uh, and well as defenders of the law, and they're largely the same group of people, argue that the disruption that would be 
uh, created by a victory in these suits is significant and worthy of consideration by the court. What do you think of that? I disagree wholeheartedly. That's not a consideration of the court. Uh, the court's consideration is, is merely is the statutory language give the power and authority to the IRS to, to do that which they did. And if it doesn't, uh, the disruption has been, been caused by the unlawfulness of that agency. Uh, moreover, this is the mo most unsettled law perhaps in history. This thing was passed in March of 2010. Uh, here you and I are in the, in, in the fall of 2014 uh, addressing issues of implementation. Uh, I think people across the country uh, look at this law as very tenuous. They don't agree with the policy side, but they also have problems with the implementation of it that has occurred the last four years. So it's a very unsettled law. I would, uh, I would dispute that it's uh, something that would disrupt the marketplace. I think what's disrupting the marketplace is the uncertainty that's being created by the regulatory overreach of this administration, administration's agencies. Scott Pruitt is the Attorney General for the state of Oklahoma. You can watch Cato's half-day conference on the latest Obamacare lawsuits at our website, cato.org.